Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. I'm Mitzi Perdue. I wrote a book called How to Make Your Family Business Last. And some people call me the family business whisperer. My infinite rule for myself, and I guess I'd share it with anybody who wants to pick it up, keep yourself surrounded by people with whom you can grow rather than shrink. And the person who's always critical of you, that person is shrinking you. Get out. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. Helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Mitzi Perdue comes from two big family businesses, the Henderson Estate Company, famed for the Sheridan Hotels, and the Perdue Chicken Company, followed by her marriage to Frank Perdue. As a result, she's gained a lifetime of insight into why some family businesses succeed and why others don't. Her unique background within big-name dynasties eventually resulted in her book, How to Make Your Family Business Last. She discusses why she believes family businesses are at their best when they provide meaning for their members and give back to their communities. So, Mitzi, at 26, I believe, you and your siblings inherited your dad's controlling stake in Sheridan Hotels. What was that like? Well, actually, it was extremely uh, fraught. We went through something that a lot of family businesses go through, which is half of the family felt that we really had to sell the Sheraton Hotels. The other half, for a variety of reasons, including that uh, this is our legacy, this is respecting our father, nobody else will ever care about the employees as much, that half didn't want to sell. And that could have been a great big explosive fight of the sort that you read about in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. In fact, before coming here, I looked up family feuds on Google, and you can find, at least this morning, 1.5 million family business feuds. So it happens a lot. But it didn't in our family for what I take to be a really important reason that I'd like to share with our listeners. I definitely want to hear what that is. I had read, if I can just jump in here, that your brothers wanted to sell and you did not. And you had a controlling stake in that business, but they went ahead and made that decision to sell. And you had written or said in an interview that you think because you were a woman, they may not have consulted you. And I'm just wondering, how did that make you feel? And what was the dynamics there? The dynamics were that, yes, the men wanted to sell, the women didn't. I have have two sisters as well. But I didn't feel that I wasn't listened to. I felt the real issue, uh, in the end, it turned out to be economic. If you're back in the late 1960s, if you belong to a hotel chain, it made so much sense to partner with an airlines or a car, com- a rental car company. And in the end, we did argue about it. Uh, you know, white hot tempers <laughs> on this issue. But one of the traditions that I grew up with is you argue, you let the feelings out, uh, you get it out on the table. But when the decisions is, ma- is made, you pull together and it's done and you go on. But it would be extremely just not done in our family to go to the public about it, to, to go to, say, a public relations person or a lawyer. The, the, the thing that I was brought up with is you solve the problems within the family. And even if you really feel strongly about it, and you know, in this case, I didn't win, but I'm so glad that we were brought up with the tradition that you can't always be right. And part of that, that means that today, 
five decades later. The family's still close and loving and supportive. We just had our 127th reunion. And I don't think that would have happened if we didn't have the tradition of, yes, you can fight it out, but once the decision's made, you close ranks and move on. That's interesting that the women in the family wanted to hold the business and the guys wanted to sell it. What do you think is behind that? Well, looking back on it, that it how it appeared to me at the time was somewhat sexist. But looking back on it, uh, I have a great deal of respect for both brothers who at that time were in the business world. My sisters and I, I was too young. My other sister was living in Europe and another sister was living in Montana. We didn't have our fingers on the pulse of reality to the extent that the guys who were in the business. So I don't resent it that that the decision was made. And as for whether I was consulted or not, I certainly argued about it. But in the end, uh, a decision was made and we came together and moved forward. You mentioned you keep your family quarrels within the family. Don't air that dirty laundry. That's so countercultural now because we live in this world of reality TV and families are out there exposing everything. So tell us more about the wisdom of keeping things within the family. Well, I was brought up just from childhood. I mean, I can remember sitting around the family dining room table hearing about this, that family quarrels, and particularly in the case of Sheraton, was uh, family controlled, but uh, it it was publicly owned as well. And we were told, that if we had a family quarrel, that we simply must, as a matter of morality, keep it contained within the family. Because if we went public with a quarrel, that would, you know, nothing destroy, or very few things destroy business wealth faster than a family quarrel. I mean, an earthquake or a fire might do the trick. But but short of something like that, family quarrels are one of the biggest destructors of, of family wealth. And we were told that it wasn't just a matter of us and our feelings, that there were, at that point, I think there were like 20,000 Sheraton employees. There were 25,000 stockholders. And if we selfishly allowed a quarrel of our own to weaken the company, it would affect not just us, but but it would affect the community. It would affect the tax base of, of, of the areas where we had hotels. And there were close to 300 at the time of his death. So, we, you know, I'm going to presume, Veronica, that you grew up with the idea that you would never commit murder, right? Okay, I feel that we were taught almost as strongly that just as murder is something we don't do, uh, washing our dirty linen public is something that we don't do. And that's even carried down to you know, today, because I hear my children talking with their children about, in this family, we don't wash our dirty linen in public. You didn't think that the, your brother selling the business was a gender issue, it sounds like now. Oh, in retrospect. In retrospect, you in, don't. Yeah, it, at, then at, you did. Well, you know, a lot of years have gone by, and I hope some wisdom. And looking back on it, uh, I'm I'm not going to say it was a gender issue. It, well, in a way it was, because back in the 1950s, I don't think my father ever expected any of the girls to go into the business. So in that sense, uh, I wasn't in the business because girls weren't expected to go into the business. So in a way, it was a gender issue. But looking back, uh, I think it was, it was a decision that was made for business reasons. You work with a lot of families, so I'm wondering what gender issues you do see now among families. I can think of a woman who told me that her two brothers are effectively trying to squeeze her out of the family business, and the way they do it is they don't tell her when important meetings are. And she says the pain of this permeates every hour of every day. So when when it goes wrong, it's catastrophically wrong. So, so one of my premises in the book that I wrote, How to Make Your Family Business Last, one of my premises is teach kids just from the youngest age the values that you want. If you leave it to accident, the odds are that it's going to come out wrong. And some of the values that that 
I work to instill are you can't always be right. Oh, and another one that might be surprising, we're not big on the idea of standing on principle. And that may sound shocking, but I'll tell you what I mean by it or, or what the two families I'm associated with mean by it. If I tell you in an argument that I'm standing on principle, that's the functional equivalent of telling you, I'm gonna, not going to listen to your point of view. I'm going to be stubborn. I don't care what happens. So we're not big on standing on principle. We're very, very big on trying to listen to the other side and recognizing that you can't always be right. So what did you tell that woman who was getting shut out of the meetings by her brothers? I'm more about prevention than I am about curing existing problems because by the time it's reached that point, I'm not sure how much you can do. I mean, I think maybe it's psychiatry time. My my whole premise is that the earlier that you teach the values that you want, like let's let's start with gender equality. Both families that I'm part of put an enormous amount of effort into teaching kids, not leaving it to accident, teaching them from the youngest age the values that we care about. And one of the ways that we do this is we have family newsletters. The family newsletters, they're once a month, but they're newsletters for adults t- telling who got married or what's going on in the company. The newsletters for children, they're frankly fairly preachy. They're going to tell you things about why we value honesty or uh, why it's a really good thing to be frugal. But we want to do it in such a way that the medicine goes down real smooth. And the way we do that is, and actually not we, I, every month a child is going to get not only a newsletter that's going to tell, I'll give you an example. It tells funny stories about how at Thanksgiving, great-great-grandmother was famous for her biscuits and should bake the biscuits on aluminum foil after they had been baked. And uh, you know, people had eaten them, should wash the aluminum foil, dry it, fold it, and reuse it again. And that was an example of that we are a frugal family. Well, the activity that goes with this, every month they get not only a newsletter, but they get a treasure chest, a box of, uh, it's going to vary every every month, but in this case, it will be a chef's hat for each child and a chef's apron for each child and the ingredients to make Mommy Do's biscuits. And each activity that comes each month uh, is designed to take about an hour, and it's time for the parents or grandparents to talk with the young ones about things that we care about, things that... Uh, that make us us, and one of the things is frugality, and an example was Mommy Do's washing off the aluminum foil. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Spend time with Alexa? Then make What's News part of your flash briefing on the Amazon Echo, the Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. You were in a car accident in 1993, I read. What did, can you tell us what happened? Oh, it was. It should have been a very, very minor accident. I was on the way to give a speech, and it was in Florida. And I was in a car, and the driver, uh, he got some kind of signal from a doorman to move forward suddenly, and he wasn't aware that I was half in and half out of the car. And I did this funny somersault that ruptured a disc. I gave my talk that night, and that was the last time I walked for another, like, eight and a half months. Because uh, rupturing a disc, if it's bad enough, uh, it means you can't walk. And they didn't want to operate because 
because in the exact place that it was, there was a certain amount of fear that, that I could become uh, paraplegic. And so they, they kept hoping that it might get better on its own. It didn't. Until surgery, you know, God bless modern surgery. Uh, I, I had the surgery. I was walking four hours later. It was amazing. I, I love modern medicine. In truth, yeah, I didn't know that it would be a success, and there was the danger that if it didn't go right, I'd be in a wheelchair the rest of my life. What I learned from it, I guess, is that I'm so grateful for being able to walk. I mean, I'm not sure that a day goes by when, when I'm not grateful that I can walk. You said up until your early 40s, you had never really did much with your education or abilities. How come? It gets down to, to something that was almost a crippling fear of mine. I don't know where it came from, but I've, I have seen it in many other people as well. I had a good education. I went to Harvard, and I had actually dreamed of a career in communication, but I never dared try. Instead, I, I spent the years up until about age 40 growing rice in California. And uh, in case people aren't sure they heard me right, rice, <laughs> the, the plant that grows in the field and that you eat. And the reason that I had never really tried for what I most wanted, I also, I mean, communication is my love. I wanted to be a writer and I wanted, you know, my absolute dream was radio or television. I'd never tried. And an event happened in my life that changed everything. In fact, there was one moment that changed my life, and that is a person who worked for me, a farmer, a tenant farmer who worked for me in the rice farm. He was a brilliant man, and he was, you know, his whole life he wanted to write a great book. He spent his whole life preparing for it, and he never did it. And one day I realized why he was never going to write the great book, because he was afraid of failure. And I decided at that moment, I'm going to make my life the opposite of his. I'm going to redefine failure. I'm going to say that failure isn't that you don't achieve your immediate goal. It's that you didn't try. And so when I redefined failure, I began sending articles out to magazines and newspapers and getting plenty of turndowns and rejection letters. But I also got some oh, some things published. And you know, at the, at the height of my career, I worked for Scripps Howard and my columns went to 420 newspapers. But that never would have happened if I hadn't had the inspiration that, that you've got to try. The one thing that guarantees failure is not to try. I also began auditioning for radio and television. And almost within a year of that insight of what held my friend back, the fear of failure, and that I was going to, I was going to overcome fear of failure or redefine it, I had a job working for the Coast to Coast Radio Network, and I was work my I had a television show that I had auditioned for, and then sold to uh, Dupont. I was syndicated to seventy six stations, but it all happened because I was willing to accept all these rejection letters. Oh, by the way, I also wrote books, and I I think before the first one was published, I bet I had thirty rejection letters, but each one I regarded as. A badge of honor because it meant that I, I had tried and I had put myself out there and, you know, I was learning things along the way. So advice that I have for women is uh, failure is not giving it your all. But if you, you know, short term, you don't get first thing that you were looking for. You're still way, way, way ahead of yourself because you've learned things. You've met people. You've you've probably sharpened your skills. So try and and just say I'm paying my dues when you get the rejection letters or the turndowns. I find it interesting. You come from such a well-known family with resources, yet some people would think, well, what does she have to be afraid of? She's got all the security in the world. Well, okay, this is getting really deep, but I've been married twice, and the first marriage was as unhappy as my second marriage was joyful. Uh, my first marriage was to a university professor who 
was not encouraging, to put it mildly. And uh, if you're with somebody who, who doesn't believe in you and says you, is giving you constant messages that you can't, unless you have a much stronger personality than I did, uh, you absorb it. So, you know, part of this was uh, being surrounded by people who were negative. My, my rule for myself at my age today if somebody's negative, if it's honest criticism that's going to, you know, learn something from it, I welcome it. I cherish it. I search it out. But on the other hand, if it's somebody who's just sort of out of nowhere undermining my self-confidence, you know, turn my back and have nothing to do with them. What advice do you have for women who may be in relationships who they feel like that person might be holding them back? I'm a bit hard-hearted about this, but... Yeah, we don't, life is not a dress rehearsal. My, my infinite rule for myself, and I guess I'd share it with anybody who wants to pick it up, keep yourself surrounded by, by people who, with whom you can grow rather than shrink. And the person who's always critical of you, that person is shrinking you. That person's keeping you from being all you can be. A relationship where the person is shrinking you, get out. So, I mean, I divorced a person that, that was shrinking me. And then and then I married somebody who celebrated everything that went right. And, oh, my goodness, the difference between the possibility of being all you can be versus somebody who is shrinking. You phrased the question approximately, what advice would I have for somebody who's in, in a relationship where the person, and I'm paraphrasing, where the person is shrinking you, get out as fast as you can. How do people treat you differently when they find out your last name? Oh, I've experienced that. <laughs> uh, it's huge. It, it's uh, it's slightly scary because I'm aware that I live in a fantastic bubble because when people know my last name, they do treat me differently. Maybe with kid gloves, maybe they're afraid that uh, that I would be the ultimate diva or whatever. I, it's, it's very clear to me that I get treated differently when they know my last name. And I make a fair amount of effort when I meet people not to say my last name. And by the way, that's not because I don't enjoy people being super nice to me. I love it. Gobble it up. But I, I always am afraid of the degree to which I'm living in a bubble and to try to escape that. Like, I do something that Frank Perdue always did. He always traveled economy class, even if it's like to China. And I always go up economy. Uh, I use buses. I use certainly use public transportation here in New York. I always go by train and I go, I don't go first class on, on any of those. And the people don't know my last name. And to me, that's, that's an attempt to escape the bubble of everybody treating me with kid gloves. And by the way, I love the kid gloves. Don't stop the kid gloves. But Your late husband, Frank Perdue, was sort of a larger-than-life figure in business. So I'm just wondering, how did you find your own identity or develop your own identity when you have someone like that you're partnered with? Well, the first year or so of marriage, I didn't work. I, I just spent full time running the house. But but somewhere around the second year, I realized I do need an identity of my own. And so, and this gets back to the fear of failure thing. I had worked for Capital News in, in California, and I decided that I really wanted to be writing again, be a syndicated columnist. So I applied to like 30 different syndicators. You know, by this time, I've had 10 years of experience and, and you know, a really nice letter from, from my former boss saying that, that, that I was accurate that I was timely and that I didn't cause him headaches. And I was thinking, oh, I should get a job easily. And I've got a famous last name now. Hope, hope, hope. Nope. I didn't hear a single word from any of them, uh, any of the ones that I tried. But at one point, I was, I'd 
volunteered for a charity, and I was telling this woman who was part of the charity, I've sent out all these letters, and I don't hear back from anybody. And she said, oh, well, I'm friendly with Walter Vesey of Scripps Howard. Why don't I show him your stuff? And, like, I get hired the next day, which convinces me that it's who you know rather than how good you are. Some people will say, why work? If I was in your shoes and then came from your family or married into the Purdue family, I think I'd just sit on a beach. What, what do you say to those folks? Well, I can take it even a step further. Um, this is the part I shouldn't say. I'm 76. It, at 74, I started a whole new career, public speaking. I spent a year going to the National Speakers Association Speakers Academy. And so why am I starting a, a whole career at age 74? Because I love working. I love I love what I do. I, I have, I mean, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I think that I have knowledge that can help people. And my purpose in life is to increase happiness and decrease misery. And I like to joke that I, I would personally like to save the whole world, but that gig isn't on offer. <laughs> So what I can do is share some of the attitudes and techniques and and just general approach that has enabled the two families that I'm closest to to have survived. I think we're at like 230 years now if you put the two together. And so I want to share what I know. You've said you live simply. Can you explain a little bit more about what you mean and why you decide to live simply? Well, it's in, in both families, there's a huge tradition of living crazily beneath your means. I mean, Frank Perdue did not need to go economy class when he's flying to China, but he did. The reason that I choose to live beneath my means is, first of all, you, you just don't worry. If, if I mean, I, I hardly... I don't have to budget because I know that I'm living so far beneath my means. And how this plays out, the apartment that I live in, it's in Maryland, and it's, I don't know how many square feet it is, but I'll tell you who my neighbors are in the building. Uh, one is a woman who is, she's trying for a job in the local sheriff's department, and she'll probably get it because she's been a cadet and she's gone through the right things. Another one is the head of IT for a small local hospital. I mean, it is not millionaire's row. What do I need to live in a super expensive apartment? I just don't. I'm going to be equal happy either way. But I I personally, what's going to make me happy is something that I learned from my late father. My late father, founder of Sheraton Hotels, said that the greatest happiness his money ever gave him was in giving it away. Well, if I live way, way, way beneath my means, I've got so much more money to support the charities that I love. You're the former president of the 35,000-member American Agri-Women, which is one of the oldest American farm workers' organizations. What would you say is the most pressing issue facing female farm workers? By the way, I'm not going to say farm workers. It's uh, people associated with agriculture. So, uh, you know, it could be owners of a farm or somebody who's working in an agriculture-related industry. I was on a conference call just a couple of days ago about what our, our next meeting, which is in June and what Washington, what it's going to be about. So I can say with a certain amount of authority what 40,000 women in agriculture think is is the biggest issue, trade issues. They feel over and over again that we've just been rolled in the trade issues, the, the trade deals that we've had. And so they would love to take a much more, I don't want to say protectionist because they're, they're I swear to you, they're not protectionist, but they, they're into fair trade rather than unfair trade. And some people try to say that, that if you want to take a, a strong stand on trade that you're protectionist. I don't see that in them at all, and I know them very, very well. I see them as as wanting a level playing field. Time now for your secrets. I'm Mitzi Perdue. My money secret is live way below your means. You'll be equally happy and you'll have less worries. And you can give more away, either to your children or to charities that you support.
Be sure to listen back regularly for all new episodes featuring SoulCycle CEO Melanie Whalen, CEO of Metropolitan Capital Advisors Karen Feinerman, as well as other women leaders sharing the secrets to their success. Check out more at Apple Podcasts, WSJ.com forward slash podcast, or your favorite audio provider. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.